Okay, welcome to 118 Podcast again. I'm uh, back with Samir this evening. You all right, Samir? Good evening, Paul. How are things with you? Enjoying the weather? Oh, yeah, loving it. I'm just going to melt into like a puddle in this chair, I think. It's far too much. Don't do that, mate. Yeah, it'll just uh, cause problems for our next podcast, mate, if you can't speak and you're just melting away. Our uh, media, yeah. media empire will just come crumbling. Yeah. Yeah. It's, as I said to you before we started this podcast, the, the temperature in my office is 27.2 degrees. Um, I don't want to open the window because there's traffic noise out there. And I don't want the fan on either because it interfects, yeah, you know, it gets picked up on the microphone. So I'm suffering for your listening enjoyment. I hope you fucking appreciate it. Well, I'm going to say if our empire does a crumble, I bet you Rupert Murdoch will be really happy. Or my, you know, we're a big threat to him at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> Can I tell people what we're going to talk about? Although I have actually been posting it on social media. But, yeah, sure, uh, go ahead. Um, right, well, we're going to be talking about the infamous H.H. H. Holmes. He was the first uh, American serial killer, apparently. Yeah, apparently, yes. Yeah. I think when he was convicted of murders, he confessed 27 in total. That's right, that's correct. So that's quite a lot of people. Although there are certain things, uh, evidence, that say that um, he may have killed over 200. The, the thing that I've learned about him by doing various reading, and I, 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 as I said to you on Sunday, last Sunday when we were talking, I, I bought a book, a, a proper book this time, not an hour's history book that was just being read out to me by some random fella, but a proper book that you actually have to read. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> and I got... You must be getting old, Paul. Yeah, yeah. I tried to complete it, but no chance. Not with the full-time job during the day and editing video and arranging social media stuff and whatnot. Um, but I got like 190 pages into a, over a 1,000-page book. So that's quite an accomplishment, I suppose. I suppose when after reading 190 pages, you must have thought, ah. Oh. I don't mind meeting this guy in the dark heli sometimes. He sounds like a great guy, uh, sort of thing, yeah. Yeah, I think if you was on side with him, if you was a mate of his, I think you'd be right. But even yeah. then, sometimes he wasn't too nice to his mates. No, uh, yeah, but... that's, that's, that's <laughs> bullshit. Yeah, he, no, he's a complete arse, this guy. Um, so we might as well start right from the very beginning then, um, you know, when he was yeah, a sure. kid. Uh, and then just work our way up, I guess. Oh, yeah, what we know about him. Because, uh, let's face it, this guy was full of shit. If you read in depth about this guy or watch documentaries about him, you don't know what's what's fact or fiction. The guy was just a, a serial liar. He was just yeah. He was uh, the biggest fraudster, biggest con man you can meet, uh, sort of thing. And there was no, no one knows his proper ID. That's an amazing thing. He used so many different pseudonyms. He yes. was all over the place. It's so many different names. Even even the H H Holmes name that we referred to him now in modern day wasn't his real name his real name is herman mudgett yes that's right yeah but it's amazing how his uh real name has disappeared into history but this fake name of hh holmes has stayed with him as we were going to go back or we are going back to when he was a kid i mean he was quite a strange little kid even when he was three or four years old uh he would harm little animals uh, and stuff like that and uh, he would torture them uh, I would understand if he wants to eat a squirrel, which uh, they did in southern states where I think he comes from. But he would get a hare or a squirrel and make sure they were alive and tortured them and basically would see the actual fear in this animal's face. It makes you wonder what sort of person can do that. So there was something wrong with this guy. That is a classic trait of that psychopathic um, serial murder murderer behaviour is torturing small animals. That's where it starts. Get a thrill out of it and you think oh, i quite enjoy this now as, as i read when he was torturing animals or he was actually dissecting them and he perfected a way to dissect animals so that they would still be alive up until sort of the final moment so to speak and that actually helped him in later life with his medical um studies that he went through i get his medical point of view because i think that's what people used to do they used to practice in uh, on animals anyway before they got a while out yeah. to actually go into humans or uh, live in humans when they were sort of doing ops operations but the thing like you say he made it so perfect 
they would be alive to the last minute. And I'm sure any person or any, any animal, basically, if they're going to die, they want to die straight away. They don't want to go through that pain. Like, you know, some of the things they're showing medieval times, sort of thing, what they used to do to people. Oh, yeah, quartering people and, and yeah, and, um, disinceration, yeah. that sort of stuff. Yeah, while they're still alive. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. That actually reminds me of a, a TV show I saw once. I think it was um, called The Bourgeois. The Borgias, that was it, The Borgias. Um, it had a quite a um, well-known actor. I can't remember the guy's name. He's one of those actors. Jeremy Irons? No, it was the other version. Um, there's because there was two okay. TV episodes of the Borgias. One that had Jeremy Irons in it, and another one had um, this other guy's American guy. He was trying to be mm-hmm. like you know the lead, like the Pope, but he had American accent. Fucking ridiculous. But however, the point I'm making is is that there was a a scene in that where they're they're um, executing like um, heretics, and yeah, what you're saying about the medieval times and that period of history, that's so brutal. They're actually sawing a person in half from the crutch. They're hanging them upside down, sawing them in half from the crutch down. And you, you don't see all of it on this TV show, but you see enough to, like, you know, clench your legs and your ass. It's like, whoa, I can't believe they've shown that. Jesus, I didn't need to see that. So anyway... <laughs> Coming back to what we're saying, it was like that. It was basically like medieval times, and I just feel that obviously science had advanced, people's attitude had changed. But this guy was a loner, from what I read. Other kids didn't mix with him. He was very intelligent, but there was something as well in the school. I think he was slightly lazy, from what I remember. That's why um, other kids didn't really mingle with him much. In fact, he was actually bullied as a kid, apparently, because uh, because of his academia. He was quite intelligent and he would do well at school so the kids other kids just take the piss out of him you know and that happens all the time i remember being at school and um all the you know all the sweaty kids used to do all their homework on time all that shit they always used to get you know well we always used to rip the piss out of all the all the jocks you could class us as i suppose the the, the kids used to play football every lunchtime i was one of them and it would take the piss out of those sweaty twats because They'd spend their whole time just, you know, even on a sunny day, they'd be sat indoors reading a book or doing their homework. And think, oh, yeah. But that's kind of what he was like. So yes. I used to get ripped the piss out of. As you're slightly more advanced, but because you've seen more FBI and CIA programs where they've investigated serial killers and the psychology. Like, as you say, he was getting bullied. Because one of these people just sat at home, did his homework and never had any friends. Do you reckon there was a form of anger he had? Yeah, it's a big, big contributing factor. Well, cause if you don't have any friends, you become much more insulated and angry at stuff. Well, actually, I can relate to that to some degree because I, during my school years, my secondary school, which I don't know what you would call that in other countries or whatever, but um, it's around about the age of 13, possibly 14, around about that time. I was actually quite popular at school. I had a fairly decent circle of friends. We'd all play football. We'd all mingle outside of school and stuff like that. But then due to one reason or another, I actually became quite isolated. And these friends I used to be with kind of distanced themselves from me. And I spent my last two years at at secondary school pretty much with one or two friends. So I felt angry quite a lot of the time. And that is a massive contributing factor. So you know what I said to you when we were doing the Jack the Ripper podcast? That I'm like one step away? I wasn't fucking lying, mate. (laughs) That's why our podcast is so popular, because they know that they may have a potential serial killer presenter, at least one. Yeah, we could do it in real time. I I could crack, and then, uh, you know... (laughs) Yeah, poor poor Sam. I'll hear the screams and all the blood coming onto my screen and going, shit, by the way, guys, it's a joke. He's not like that. <laughs> but no, the anger does fuel an awful lot. I mean, it, it, it changed me as, a, as an individual growing up in those formative years, you know, because it's like mid-teens. That is a that is a, a time where you're going through puberty and your hormones are racing, so the anger as well, you're getting angry. I used to actually get into, um, what do you, I don't know what the word is, skirmishes, I suppose, on the football pitch with kids that I'd known for years. If there was a particular tackle that I didn't like, or they were, they went in hard on a particular tackle or somebody on my team, I would hunt them out and fucking take them out. There's a few incidences I can remember where I seriously hurt people, or seriously hurt one particular kid I remember, um, because he, he did something I didn't like on the football pitch. <laughs> um, 
yeah, very angry times for me. So I can well, completely, yeah, so I, I've got experience of that, yeah. Okay, I mean, for various other different reasons, I was a loner at school and I did have a bit of a bitterness and angry, uh, and, uh, you know, the anger inside. I think it's a case of how you come out of it. It took me until uh, the age of, uh, I'll say, 39, 40 to get out of it. And I realised that I can't do this to myself. So, yeah, in the last four four years plus, I've just become a happy-go-lucky person. More, I think exercise helped me and I've made so many other friends. So this guy must have been at the next level to what both of us have said, to actually say, OK, I've had enough of the world. One way or another, I've got the intelligence. I am quite cunning, and I want to take my revenge on the world. Well, yeah, I suppose what we've what we've just talked about there is how you handle it as the individual. You know, do you just crack, you start killing people, or, or something quite as extreme as that? And that much it started off by just having this goal of being wealthy. I think, from what I've read, is that that's why I become a serial fraudster. He was always into scams, trying to con me, con people out of money. And he was a serial bigamist as well, which is one of the biggest crimes that he committed. He was married to about three or four different women, I think, you know, when he got arrested and was executed. That's one of the things that really amazes me is that, I mean, in this day and age, I just don't think you could get away with that. There's so much tracking and tracing in our society these days. We really are a massive surveillance society now. I don't think you'd get away with being a bigamist, could you? I don't, can't think of anyone that has done that in recent um, times. No, I can't. I, I don't think you can because... As you say, we've got the internet, you've got uh, credit cards, debit cards, all different things that can track your mobile phones. Yep. I don't know, you could be in two places at the same time. You're certainly an interesting character, and uh, I, I think the biggest thing I took away from reading about him, even mm -hmm. though I haven't finished reading that book, um, yes. is the fact that he was so well-groomed and he could charm people he was so so um so social so amenable to people that he could trick them into doing things and just talk his way out of situations i find that fascinating so for somebody that was sort of isolated for so long and and taking the piss out of that rage inside of him he's flipped it around and become like this really outgoing personality which i find really quite amazing I don't know if you read in between uh, before he became H.H. H. Holmes, he became a teacher in a small town and something went wrong there. I don't know what it was. I think one of the students hmm. went missing or something, yeah, if uh, I remember correctly. He, he went to a medical school, I believe, and he, he was um, he, he was training to become um, a physician or a surgeon. I can't remember which one it was now. But he was very handy with a knife and he was pretty good at pretty good at what he was doing and he he, he qualified he yes. you know, he he became a qualified whatever it was that he became <laughs> and uh, but academically he was very good uh, but at that time that he was there i read that he was taking corpses and deforming the corpses beyond recognition so people couldn't identify who they were and he was using those to his benefit to try and defraud money from life insurances and things like that so I think he skipped town because he was getting a bit too close, getting a bit hairy. He was um, almost on the verge of being found out, which is a very common trait for old Holmes or Mudgett. He's chased all over, the, all over the place in his later life. Yeah, and I think uh, before that, I think when he qualified, uh, I think he ended up in a small town. And this is where I'm talking about uh, uh, this uh, part of his life where he actually was a teacher. Uh, from what I remember, basically, in this small village. And I think one child went missing from his class. And then something else happened, and people started getting a little bit suspicious. So overnight, he had to disappear from there as well. The most interesting connection is we're going back. Apparently, allegedly, he was in London at the same time that the Jack the Ripper um, murders happened. But before, I, I want to emphasize one thing. America's had first serial killers, first everything, they say. Sorry, Jack the Ripper was the first serial killer and he was probably a British guy. So I'm not going to give the Americans that and say, hey, hey, Holmes was Jack the Ripper. 
Uh, sorry, I have to put that out. I want to at least keep one thing that is still British, and we were the first in it. I know it's not the greatest thing to uh, be first in, but uh... yeah. <laughs> we got the first serial killer. But then, you know, we also have to preface that with the fact is that Jack the Ripper and all these others preceding killers, um, yes. that is modern day definition. That's you know, at, at that time, you just somebody that killed multiple people. Whereas now, the, the term serial killer is very much an American FBI creation because of the FBI profilers and that's how they helped to build this whole serial killer thing where they try and catch them and understand them, etc. Why I remember, I watched a documentary in 2017. Um, I don't know if you've had a chance, but his great-great-grandson, Jeff Mudgett, who's a ex- lawyer or attorney as they say and he got help with the cia and he was trying to prove that hh H. holmes was jack the ripper they do have some similar sort of habits traits but i'm still convinced he wasn't him there's something that just doesn't convince me yeah i agree uh, in fact I, I briefly touched on that guy yeah i think you might have sent me a link to that about this great great whatever he is to me that just seemed like a grift that's on, you know, I haven't read into it too much, but that's what it seemed to me on the surface. I find it very difficult to believe that he's Jack the Ripper because if we're to believe all the all the bullshit surrounding H.H. H. Holmes, and there is an awful lot of it, I think. Yes. If we're to believe that, he was premeditated and he was a very clever killer. He disposed of the bodies in various ways. He even sold skeletons, defleshed skeletons to medical um, practices and doctors and whatnot so they could have them for their studies and things and he, he would get money for it. So he was clever in that sense. He was disposing of evidence. Jack the Ripper was just slashing prostitutes up. There was no premeditation in there. The Jack the Ripper killings to me seemed like somebody who was just a rage killer. I, I, yeah. To me, it's a completely different MO. I don't understand how you could connect the two. The reason why I think... Um his great-great-grandson, Jeff Mudgett, was trying to connect it is because, you know, they'll keep on saying the way this person was a medical person, he was an expert at taking the bowels out, taking right. the liver out. And I think because H.H. H. Holmes, as you know, was a medical student and uh, did that, and I think he was trying to connect that. But even then, why would you go to the biggest city in the world where there's possibility, probably at the time, and I think still is, you had the best police force in the world, uh, Scotland Yard. I know people blame them they didn't catch Jack the Ripper, but the other alleged thing that his great-great-grandson said that Scotland Yard actually followed him all the way from London to uh, New York when he left. And one of his landladies said that, uh, yeah, she had an American, he would uh, come in at funny times and leave it odd hours at night. And once or twice he had blood on his clothes. Uh, that he had left behind a few times and she wouldn't ask him anything but she never saw this guy's face clearly because there's also this conspiracy theory that when he went to the gallows there's two actually one is where he shouted out I was Jack and you hear just Jack and that's what the conclusion is that he was Jack the Ripper the other one is that uh, basically he sent someone else who looked very similar to him to the gallows and he escaped somewhere <laughs> in the countryside so right. this is what his great-great-grandson has said, he, that to the last, he frauded even the actual system by disappearing. And as I said, it just looks like a load of, it sounds like a load of old bollocks. It just sounds like a tenuous connection in order to just get money out of people, to me. Uh, that guy, that guy might try and sue me if he ever hears this, but hey, you know, good luck. I ain't got nothing. So, <laughs> <laughs> but... No, it just seems like a load of bollocks. And or what we can do, if that's the case, other than soon saying, "Come, come, come on to our show, let's have a Q and A. Tell oh. us why you think. Why yeah, do you yeah. think he wasn't? Yeah. H. Why H. did Holmes, you think? Yeah, H. H. Holmes wasn't Jack the Ripper. Changed my mind. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> brilliant. Exactly. Yeah. Why not? Uh, it, it could be uh, interesting. Yeah, to um, our audience of um, five that we have. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm not saying straight away, I mean, maybe uh, in the future. <laughs> Moving on from that, um, it's just a brief overview of Mudgett himself. So he was born in Gilmanton in New Hampshire in 1861. 
and he died in Philadelphia. He was obviously sentenced to death for his crimes. He was only 34 when he died. Now, when yes. you read about what that guy got up to and the amount of things that he did, most people in their 60s haven't done that sort of stuff in this day and age. Most people are sat at home and they're living in their mother's house at 40 odd. Yeah, I know, yeah. What not can doing, I say? Not doing anything, really. I mean, this guy's all over the country. Fraud and scams and killing people and buying stuff and selling it on. It's amazing what people. What? This guy was traveling all over America yeah. at one stage just because he was out running predators and all sorts. All I'm going to say if he had stayed with his mother till he was 40, none of this would have happened. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very true. Yeah. I think uh, I think he was also frustrated with his parents or something because I've noticed with serial killers they always have that frustration with their parents for some reason. The yeah. parents have done something either they've overprotected them or abused them, and I think his parents, from what I remember, overprotected them. Well, actually, something. no. There was um, no, no. It, apparently, his father was very um, very violent and sadistic in his violence, so that's mm -hmm. where it looks like it comes from is his violent father and very devout methodists as well apparently so there's the you know the, the hand of god coming through them <laughs> trying to enforce strict religious discipline so that's not helping yes. anyone really is it <laughs> <laughs> i don't think how can i say i think it doesn't help anyone uh, whatever sort of that really strict discipline i think sometimes he's a great hh holmes is a great example where you try to discipline someone to an extent where you have a outer shell but inside there's no soul basically he's got a, just a twisted appreciation of um conning people and killing people he enrolled in the university of vermont in burlington so he was dissatisfied with the school and left after one year he entered the university of michigan's department of medicine and surgery there you go so and graduated in 1884 after passing his exams so he worked in the anatomy lab under a professor herdman so that's where all the you know dissection and all that sort of stuff came into use where he was yes. very handy with a knife yeah a, a noted advocate of human dissection so he worked under under a guy called nahum wright nahum white i should say a noted advocate of human dissection so when holmes was suspected of murder and claimed to be nothing but an insurance fraudster he admitted to using cadavers to defraud life insurance companies several times in college there you go that's what i was um, referring to earlier is that he would um, burn them he would basically disfigure them so that people couldn't see who it was so they'd just have to take word for it you know so he was married to his childhood sweetheart as well back in his hometown a woman called Clara Loveling. And I don't think he ever got divorced from her. Yeah, I think he one day said to her, he's going away on a trip and then disappeared. Well, apparently that the marriage was pretty much done anyway. He was quite violent towards her, supposedly, according to people that knew him and that were living in the same kind of lodging house as him. He was quite violent to her. But I don't think he ever divorced. I think he filed or she filed for divorce at one point, but they just never did. Just like getting married and, and claiming insurances, basically. Yeah, pretty much. A lot of it was done for um, financial gain. And that's what I can tell from most of his life, is that all of this murder and stuff that he was uh, that he confessed to and was supposed to have mm. done, all that's... of it was a, it was a means to an end. He was just constantly chasing after the almighty dollar. He just wanted money. And I suppose everything that came with it, the ways that he was trying to get it, just led to more and more trouble and you're supposed to get to a point where you're constantly running things are going to break you know i mean what do you do for fun when you're constantly being pressured yes debtors you know credit debtors you know what what, <laughs> what are you going to do you can't just engage no, you can't go down to the pub don't you really <laughs> well in chicago he when he moved to chicago he lived life quite lavishly there he actually went and worked in a, a pharmacy a drugstore there was a, a husband and wife who owned that. The names elude me at the moment. I could probably find out, but you know, it is when you're talking, you're just bur you know, blabbling out stuff. The husband was quite ill and turns out was fatally ill. And the woman, the wife, the, the widow was left um, running the shop. He'd actually turned up and asked for a job before the, the woman's husband had died. And he made such an impression on her that 
she took him on the spot and offered him a job because obviously he had a medical background as well, medical education. Yes. Um, and he was a huge hit with the customers as well, especially the female. I don't know what it is, but there there is like a, a natural phenomenon with these serial killer types that women become drawn to them. I don't know why. In fact, here's the point. It's still happening today. If you look on YouTube at H.H. H. Holmes videos, most of them are from young women talking about him. And they spurt out all the same old bullshit that you find all over the web. Oh, we did this, and he's murder cast, all that, and blah, blah, blah. But yeah, loads of them. Loads of these sort of like mid-20s women. Amazing phenomenon. I don't know why. You're right. There is something that attracts ladies to these sort of guys. I don't know, I don't know how they charm them. Well, they don't. In some cases, women are just attracted to the, um, the, the whole aura of that person, the whole um, danger of it. I mean, look at Ted Bundy. He yes. had, didn't he get remarried when he was in prison? A lot of them do. They get like remarried to these women that the start of writing them letters and then they get visits and then they end up getting conjugal visits. They yes. end up marrying them. It's, it's mental. I don't know. It's a certain type that's attracted by the danger, like the fear that, the fear that they could almost be dead at any moment. Oh, it's very strange. Yeah, it's like the uh, Craig brothers got married, didn't they, uh, when they were in prison? And I think you know Reggie the most Reggie did, uh, and was it you know the most dangerous man in Britain, Charles Bronson? Yes, he, yeah, he got married, didn't he? Um, it's true, to, actually. Yeah. And, and Ronnie Craig got married. You're right. Ronnie Craig did did get yeah. married as well, even though he was a gay. He got married. Yes. In the end, yeah, very strange, very yeah. strange phenomenon. Anyway, as I was saying about the the pharmacy, the drugstore, so. Obviously, the man, whilst Holmes was working there, he built up a very loyal customer base, especially sort of female customer base. And he was conning them out of things. He was, he, he had spring water. He was trying to sell as a tonic and it was just coming out of the tap. He he did actually kill someone, I, I think. It might have been before he moved to Chicago, but he, I think he killed someone, whether it's accident or deliberate, we're not sure. But by mixing up um, like a, a tonic or some sort of um, prescription, ended up killing someone. Eventually, he conned the, the woman, the, the woman that owned the drugstore, the pharmacy, the woman, he actually conned her into selling it to him. And that's how he started to make his money and then bought that plot of land to build that supposed murder castle on it. He yes. never paid that old woman a penny. I think he made a down payment of a very small amount and kept on promising that he would pay the, pay the rest in full and never did. And she kept on asking him. And eventually she gave up. She said, right, fuck it, I'm off. And she just went and... Christness. Yes. Actually, he may have even killed her in one of the one of the, the versions of events I read. He may have even killed her because she just kept on asking for the money and just right, okay. Once he killed killed her, he actually moved into the to the apartment upstairs above the drugstore. And I don't know how many years he was doing that for, but that enabled him to build up the capital, or at least some capital, or deposit maybe, to then get this um, plot of land across the road. Because that's another one of his scams was that he would maybe put in a small deposit or a down payment, borrow the rest of the money from a, a company and then never pay it back. Right. But that, that was uh, the thing he used to do with the builders when he started building the murder castle. They'll get to a certain point and then he would say, I'm not happy and never pay them. So they would go off. Yeah. So that's why no one found out that inside secrets, because all the builders were different and they were getting sacked when they got to the important bits. So do we think that they were deliberately secrets or they were just a fact that there were so many people working on the site backwards and forwards that in the end they just fucked it up? I think it could be both, basically. Where if you're having different builders coming in, they're not going to remember every plan that worked on as well. And I think um, there's also a case in some of the documentaries of uh, Watch of him where they're saying he did it on purpose so no one would find out where the uh, cellar was because I don't know if you know the full story but you had the rooms connected to cellars basically supposedly yeah those rooms of trap doors yeah. and uh, laundry chutes that were slightly wider than usual that type of thing that would all lead down into the basement and even the basement I think was um, was in different compartments there was that slight uh, internal dividing walls in the in the basement that's right yeah um, and he used to have even some of his victims uh, who were slightly alive there 
till he would go down then basically suffocate them and then either chop them up and then put them into acid baths so they'll disappear or something like that that was or they put them in drums with cement The thing I'm slightly skeptical about, I guess, is that maybe it's, maybe I'm too early into the reading of this book and the other bits and pieces, and I'm also I'm holding all of this murder castle stuff and all these elaborate networks and things of tunnels and all that kind of shit. I'm holding that at arm's length because I don't know enough about it, and all we see, well, all I've seen anyway or read about, it's just people regurgitating the same crap. And one of the biggest factors we have to take in at the time of his capture was the height of yellow journalism, just reporting misfacts or just making shit up so that in order that they could sell papers. But then if you think about, um, I know we keep on going to the reference to Jack the Ripper, they did the same thing to newspapers. They actually um, made a big deal out of this murder case where it's sort of blurred. A blur, there's a blurred line, basically, between facts and fiction. And I think this is that's what's happened with H.H. H. Holmes as well. You yeah. can't tell what is facts, what is fiction, what what has been sort of added onto the stories. What, what how many people he really killed? Was it two? Was it the twenty-seven, or was it the two hundred? We will never know. It's interesting. You know, there's a lot of parallels with that with the, the money. So everything I can tell H.H. H. Holmes did, the end result mm-hmm. was he wanted money or he had people chasing him for money where he owed so much that he always had to pull off another con, another con, another con, another con. And you think the newspapers at the time, it was all about money. They had to earn money in order to profit yes. shareholders, whatever it may be. So there's a parallel there. And the same goes with England as well. Where everything boils down to money ultimately. Yeah, we can't discount that. So no. I don't particularly... These, like, diagrams you see of his murder castle and all these different rooms and stuff like that, I'm not completely discrediting that, but I don't know, I take it with a pinch of salt because I find it quite amazing that one man could um, sack off so many different builders when they're trying to just get on with the job. And I, I find it very difficult to believe that this man, H.H. H. Holmes, designed this whole thing himself. He wasn't an architect. He wasn't trained in architecture. So, I mean, anyone could draw a picture of a, of a building or, a you know, a, a top-down view, segmented floor plan, you know, sort of like a, you know, this is the first floor and this is how I want it built. But any any engineer would come and look at it or any architect would come in and look at that and go, well, that's not going to work, mate. It was obviously a very different time then, but I still believe that there would have been at least one builder that said, don't go and work for him. That guy's a fucking idiot. He doesn't know what he's talking about, and he he won't pay you. You'll be there for a week and a half. He'll fuck you off. He will not pay you. Don't go and work there. Do you not think that all these builders talk? You know, they're, they're, they're competing for business with each other, but they still talk at the end of the day. And if you've got one particular bad client, I know in my industry, if you get a particularly bad client, other people know and people say, right, OK, you're not. We won't deal with him. Then. We won't deal with her. We won't deal with that business. I can't. That's what I mean. The whole, the whole thing just doesn't add up. I think he used to get builders from outside Chicago or workers. And don't forget, also communication wasn't as good as it's for that like you set where you're set and I'm set where I'm set. But if, if as you say, we were in the same industry, for argument's sake, then basically if something went wrong, I could send you the information like within five minutes if we've got a working relationship or whatever. Yeah, that's true. If, and this this is the thing. I mean, um, it's about the, the sort of communication. Well, that is true. Yeah. I suppose if you, you if you take it, obviously you got to take into history. Well, what I said before, and you said before, and our Jack the Ripper podcast is you can't judge history in today's context. No. I suppose we're all a little bit guilty of that at times, and I feel that I'm possibly a little bit guilty of that at the moment. I still, I don't, I still have doubts that this murder castle was this big sort of, um, you know, like the equivalent of a, a Nazi death camp which is built to execute people en masse. Uh, I think that's where the confusion or the shock is that one person built this for a specific purpose and succeeded 
and using it for that purpose. I think he even killed one of his last wives and her kids in there, allegedly. Um, and uh, also he had a warehouse near the Hudson River, basically, where he used dump barrels as well. And they used a trawler, uh, his great-great-grandson did, and they found something and they came up with a conclusion it was his pollution, basically, where he used to hide bodies. So I don't care how, how much people say what technology we have. The fact is there's certain things in history we'll never find out. We don't know how many murders he did, where he did the murders. Was it in the castle? Was it in the middle of the street at night? Did he uh, go to a brothel and kill a prostitute? We don't know this. No, so we can just speculate and just blame every person that went missing in the 30-odd years <laughs> that he was alive attributed to him. It's an easy one to pin it, yes. pin it on, isn't it? Should we go over a couple of the, these first murders? The first murders we know, yeah, sure. anyway. Later travelled to Philadelphia. Uh, got a job as a keeper at a, a hospital, but quit a few days after. He later took a position at a drugstore in Philadelphia, but while he was working there, a boy died after taking medicine that was purchased at the store. Holmes denied any involvement in the child's death and immediately left the city, right before moving to Chicago. And he changed his name then to Henry Howard Holmes to avoid the possibility of being exposed by victims of his previous scams. That's the one that stuck, though. That's the one that we know him as now. Yes. But his first murders, early murder victim, it was a mistress of his. And this is what I think you, you were just mentioning there about kids as well. Uh, a woman called Julia Smythe. Uh, she was the yes. wife of a guy that uh, who had moved into Holmes's building and began working at, at his pharmacy and a jewellery counter. And after this fella found out that uh, Holmes was shagging his wife, he said, right, OK, see you later. He quit and done one. He just left. Smythe gained custody of Pearl, remained at the hotel, continuing her relationship with Holmes. So Julia and Pearl disappeared on Christmas Eve of 1891. And Holmes later, later claimed that she had died during an abortion. Yeah. So apparently he, he actually got her pregnant and then convinced her into having an abortion that he was going to perform. I mean, can you... Uh, can you imagine that? Why on earth would you go through with that? I mean, I know that he was he was trained to some degree, but to let someone, you know, just kind of no. tinker about up there, you know, just cut cut away a little bit, you know, you'd be like, no, 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 this is not like you're having a go at, you know, trying to fix the, the car engine because it won't start in the morning. This is not that kind of... No. Oh, fucking hell. Why on earth would you agree to that? But yeah, the, what happened to them both was never really confirmed. And and it looks like he's got previous getting kids, so done away with her as well. So he could be potentially the, not only the first American serial killer, but could be the potential first serial paedophile in American history as well. Well, paedophilia and killing are two different things, aren't they? I don't think there was any sexual abuse. I think he just saw her as a problem that needed to go away. Yeah, so he basically... So he killed them. He didn't sexually do anything to them. Not, well, I, yeah, as far as as far as we know, yeah, yeah we don't know. Yeah, I, well, no, you don't. Not a hundred percent. No, no. It certainly, never mentioned in anything that I've read. But there's another one here, Emmeline Sigrand. I think that's how you pronounce her second name. But she began working in the building. I think she was uh, working as a secretary or something similar, and then she disappeared as well. But she was having an affair with with Holmes. He managed to, to bed her. Uh, never married her, but again, very similar pattern. I think there might have been some money related to the this, Sigrand this one, because I was reading about that the other day yes. in his book. There might have been money involved there, which is why he got involved with her and tried to get her to sign over. I think up to that point was about um, inheritance or changing wills or life insurance. But then in 1893, there was a World Fair, which was a business fair. And apparently quite a, a few of his victims were part of um, that fair because it, I think it was a three, it was over three years or five years, the fair. And quite a lot of women disappeared in that period of time in Chicago. Well, Chicago's a big city and it's always had a, well, all major cities have got a history of violence. So I think yes. everyone that went missing, you can't attribute to just one person, but it is possible, I suppose. Um, but it seems to me that during that, that fair, he was actually um, wooing another woman, Millie. Ah, oh, I can't remember her name. I was reading about her before we started talking. Um, yes. 
her name was Millie. I can't remember her second name now. But she was a very plain-looking woman, apparently. Um, so people were a little bit surprised because this Emmeline Sigrand that he was seeing was actually supposed to be sort of you know, a real knockout. People would turn their head and look twice at her. She was that good-looking. But So this Millie was, uh, was different. Now, Millie grew up as an orphan. She was adopted by a reasonably wealthy guy, I think down in Texas. Um, her father and mother died, obviously, and her adopted father left her money as roughly as real estate, I think, somewhere in Texas, as real estate valued roughly about $40,000. Which was a lot of money then. Yes, yeah. And that's a major reason why H.H. H. Holmes has started to woo her. He employed her, just generally taking taking care of affairs in the in the castle that he built. He offed her and her sister. <laughs> so, her sister, Millie's sister, was actually adopted by another family. So they were separated after all the, the tragedy that they'd suffered. Um, but they actually that they, they actually came and became close. They got in touch again and became close and and friends, obviously as well as sisters. And Millie invited her sister to Chicago during that welfare event. And this is what I was saying, that H.H. Um, Holmes were probably a bit too busy to be murdering hundreds of people at that time because he was busy convincing Millie's sister that he was a worthy worthy man to marry. When she learnt about um, signing over the, the property as well, there was a cause for concern. But apparently he, he charmed her as well. She started calling him Brother Harry. You know, within days of meeting the guy. So this guy had a real silver tongue. He was gifted. Oh, so he was better than a second-hand car salesman. Yeah. yeah, <laughs> yeah. But he killed both of them, and obviously everything was signed over, so he ended up with 40 grand's worth of real estate. Nice uh, for him. Uh, very nice guy. I mean, discount guy sounds such a nice guy, I'm telling you. I'm, t- I'm not going to trust anyone after uh, talking about this. I'll be very frank and honest with you. The other thing was that he became friends with uh, Benjamin Pitzel. Pitzel, yeah, Pitzel. Pitzel, Pitzel, yeah. And they worked at Chemical Bank Building together. I think he was a carpenter uh, there. Pitzel. Yes, he was, yeah. yeah. He was a criminal as well. He, he was dabbling in and out of of petty crimes as well because he was he was a drunk. He was an alcoholic. And uh, I think they had a pretty successful uh, criminal partnership for a while. Well, if you look up Peitzel or Pitzel, however you pronounce his name, he was, they're considered like a right-hand man, but more like he's kind of servant, almost like a, I've seen a few articles and books, uh, the book I'm reading, refer to him as H.H. Holmes' creature. He would just do all his dirty work for him because he had nothing else better to do and he always needed money, you know? And in the end, I think he also, if I remember, H.H. Holmes actually took out a massive life uh, insurance on him as well and yeah. killed him as well. But, yeah, that, that killing him, I haven't got that far down the line. Maybe you know something I don't. One of the scams they tried to to pull was take life insurance out on Peitzel. Holmes was going to find a human cadaver, do his usual burning and disfigurement trick, and claim it was Pitesell to get, I think it was $10,000 life insurance. Yes, I think it was something like that. And I think that he did find someone else. And I, if I remember correctly, they were going to get close to actually finding out. And then he does get rid of uh, Pitesell and says, no, look, uh, they found him here. So he is dead, basically, or something like that, if I remember correctly. Because there's so much information I've read about this. It's very hard when you're talking, like you were saying earlier. But yeah, so the partnership ended, and I think at that time, Pitesell uh, was in Texas, and that was when I think H.H. H. Holmes realised and could smell the authorities getting closer and closer to yeah. far- uncovering his uh, fraud, his murderous attitudes, his viol- violence, and him being a serial killer or whatever they used to call them in those days. A lot of the, the Texas ordeal... He was down there with um, uh, what, his, one of his wives. No, no, he was he was wooing uh, his fourth wife, Georgina Yoke, at the time. So there was three of them. There was H.H. H. Holmes, Georgina, and Peitzel. And, yes, it was getting a bit hot in Chicago. There's a, there, apparently the, um, the people that were lending him money, the bankers and the insurance companies, because he'd run up so many scams and so much debt, they'd actually joined together 
forces and hired a lawyer to go after him to try and get him to pay his money. And, and they yes. were coming down hard on him. You know, it's like, if you don't pay us this money in full of this, of X date, that's it, you're done. I think he uh, was at a meeting. He actually called a meeting with him and he even charmed them and he sort of uh, escaped a jail sentence with that. And that's where I think he escaped to Texas. By all accounts, it was an absolute master. It's one of those things that, you know, if we had a time machine, it'd be great to go and stand in the corner room and just listen on his conversations and just hear what the guy said and his mannerisms, watch what he... To, I mean, like, bankers are pretty shrewd people. Yes. Time. They can smell bullshit, especially when it comes to money. So for him to pull the wool over their eyes on multiple occasions is amazing, really. Yeah, but then again, it's like you've mentioned a modern uh, murderer, Ted Bundy, um, and he was very similar. He was very charming, and he could get if you spoke to him for arguments. I've seen his, I would say, seeing his interviews because we were we never had a chance to interview him. But uh, all the reporters who did said the same thing about him. He was very charming, a gentleman when it was female reporters, and they'll say, "There's no way this guy could be a serial killer." But the, yeah, the Texas thing. They as soon as they got into Texas again, they just started up. They started to fleece the local bankers, the local insurance companies, and stuff, and they actually tried to build a property there in Texas, I think it's Fort Worth. They tried, they bought a piece of land and didn't pay any of the money back to try and build another property similar to what he built in Chicago. That all went wrong. Obviously people got wind that the fact that he was defrauding them and whatnot. And I think they, they chased him out and tried to arrest him because he was actually horse rustling. So his level of crime had even stooped to just stealing horses. There's not much he wouldn't try. No, and in those days, especially in Texas, uh, stealing horses was a big crime. Mm. And um, yeah, he, and I think for a while he was successful in that as well. It wasn't for a lot. Texas, I think, is where his story uh, is beginning of the end, basically, for H.H. H. Holmes. If you get away with stuff for long enough, you naturally just assume you're going to keep getting away with it. Like our last podcast about a murderer, Jack the Ripper, they said he will make one mistake and will catch, catch him. I don't know. If they would have caught him, if he uh, basically made a, uh, did another four or five murders, because along the way, you are going to make that mistake. It's human nature to make a mistake. No one's going to be 100% all the time. And I think that's what happened to H.H. H. Holmes. He was slipping, his standards were slipping. It gets to desperation, doesn't it? Yes, it was desperation of, uh, for money, to get more money. I'm just going to read you a small section from the, the book, Depraved. Yeah, sure. It's the book's named Depraved and it's by the author Harold Schechter. It's definitely worth reading from you know what what I've read of it so far. I haven't finished it yet. It's very easy to read and he he's focused on trying to break through this shroud of mystery and yes. you know yellow journalism. So I'm just gonna read briefly with you. In the six months following their flight from Fort Worth, Texas, Holmes and Peitzel remained constantly on the move, gradually migrating eastward by way of major cities, Denver, St. Louis, Memphis, Philadelphia, New York. By then they had resolved to put their life insurance scam into effect and were searching for the most convenient place to stage it. Along the way, they took whatever opportunities they could find to work the occasional fraud. So in St. Louis, I think that's where he was actually arrested. Um, he wasn't held for particularly long. So in St. Louis, Holmes' increasingly careless behaviour finally caught up with him. There, he found himself in an, an unwanted situation, one that he had managed to avoid during all the years of his varied criminal career. He landed in jail. It happened in July. Settled briefly in St. Louis, Holmes, still going by the name of H.M. Howard, so another one of his you know, fictional names, took advantage of the time by attempting one of his favourite swindles. Now, this is quite interesting because this fraud scam was still going on in the 1960s you mentioned the craze the craze were known for doing this very similar scam which is what i'm going to read now okay. first he located a tidy little pharmacy whose owner was eager to sell holmes purchased the store for a modest down payment promising to come up with a balance in one month as soon as the place was in his possession he stocked it with the supplies acquired on credit from the merrill drug company Holmes then immediately turned around, sold off the entire inventory and made out a phony bill of sale 
for the store itself to a fictitious party named Brown. When his creditors attempted to collect their money, Holmes coolly explained that the store no longer belonged to him and recommended they get in touch with its new owner, Brown. So that was a common scam that he ran. And the mafia did that as well, I think. Yeah, you, yeah. you buy something, you fill it for the stock on credit, you flog it out the back door at half the price to get the cash as fast as possible, and then you burn the whole lot to the ground. And you just say, yeah. see you later. And if you're lucky, yeah. you'll get the insurance money for... Because I think he was arrested for arson at one point as well, because he tried to burn... No, he wasn't arrested. No, he tried to burn down his castle in Chicago. But the inspector the time from the insurance company said nah this looks like arson because there was multiple fires started at the same time that can't happen so then no. it laid out <laughs> <laughs> and you thought oh shit i've got no money now he kept you on arrest so with insurance companies pressing to prosecute him for arson holmes left chicago in july of 1894 he reappeared in fort worth where he had inherently inherited property from the williams sisters that's the the millie millie williams I was talking about earlier. So in July in 1894, Holmes was arrested and briefly jailed for the first time in charge of selling mortgaged goods in St. Louis, Missouri. Well, yeah, so that was why he was arrested in St. Louis. So uh, how? So after that, he got bail and then he left there and went further east. Yeah, and we actually met up with a game, a guy called um, Marion Hedgepeth. I don't know if you're aware of that name. I've heard the name, but I can't remember what happens. Uh, I think they're going to partnership, but I can't remember in what. Yeah, they do. Um, he actually met him in that jail because they were they were spending time together in that jail. And um, but this this Marion Hedgepeth has been forgotten about in history, but he was considered one of the baddest people of the old west. You, know, you hear the common names of the old west, but yeah, Marion Hedgepeth kind of gets lost. But yeah, he was. Um, very, very violent criminal, um, bank robber, all sorts. But the pair of them concocted a plan to swindle an insurance company out of $10,000 by taking out a policy on himself and then faking his death. And Holmes promised Hedgepeth a $500 commission in exchange for the name of a lawyer who could be trusted. He'd fell for that trap, didn't he, then? Hmm. So you mentioned um, Peitzel and yes. what his involvement was. Um, so Peitzel used to do a lot of, uh, a lot of bidding for... Holmes, and I think uh, he worked in the castle at some stage as well. He was just a sort of general caretaker handyman, just had him around, you know, because he would help him out with various different scams and other bits and pieces that he was doing. Yes, that's but right. Holmes managed to convince Peitzel to fake his own death and another insurance policy scam. And during that time, Holmes actually killed him by knocking him unconscious with chloroform and letting and setting his body on fire. Yes, and then I think uh, he uh, claims insurance, and then I think, um, if I remember correctly, uh, Pyrsel's uh, kids disappear. Yeah, Holmes collected the insurance payout on the basis of, of the genuine Pyrsel corpse, and he went on to manipulate Pyrsel's unsuspecting wife into, allow into allowing three of her five children to be placed in his custody, so he took custody of his children. That's right, yes. And then I think uh, they go somewhere, I think it was... Um, I can't remember, is it Philadelphia or somewhere? And uh, the kids disappeared there. And when the police basically did some re research or searched the, the house they were living in together, they found the kids' skeletons. He was arrested in Boston, apparently. That was his. Uh, that was it for him. His yeah. murder spree finally ended in Boston. Yes. And as I said, uh, he's he even alluded they're saying the law after that when he uh, was at the, in the gallows when someone else who looked like him took the took the uh, bait and died instead and apparently he retired somewhere in the country and was never heard from again which I don't believe can happen so I don't know how much of that story is true but that's what his great grandson has claimed as well that uh, he fooled the law and escaped yeah it just sounds like nonsense doesn't it apparently it's the Pinkertons that tracked him down they're oh, okay. An, they're an interesting group. The Pinkertons, they started off as being um, hired goons, really, for the railway companies, forcing yes. people to sell land and, and blowing stuff up, sabotaging things and whatnot. Yeah, Once Upon a Time in America is a perfect example of that. If you, uh, no, Once Upon a Time in the West, sorry. If you've ever watched that movie, you have to watch it. And it's about them, yeah, I how think, they were. I mean, I know the name, um, but I can't remember if I've seen it or not. The, yeah, the Pinkertons, they, they're interesting. Very interesting. Then they become fairly 
I say fairly legit, they become almost a legitimate like um, detective agency. And up to this day, they're one of the most famous agencies in history. Yeah, he was convicted for only one murder, which is quite surprising. With all the evidence that people have spoken about in Burt's and everything, he was only convicted for one murder when he said himself that he murdered 27 people. But the only problem was some of the people he said he had killed were still alive at the time. So I don't know if he lied to get away with the other murders, uh, maybe the 200 murders he was talking about. Well, apparently, what talking about. apparently Hearst Publishing, and Hearst, Hearst Newspapers and Hearst Publishing, if you look up yellow journalism, you see they're very heavily linked to that. They're kind of the, the ones that almost invented that and coined that term because they were just making up shit. Holmes was paid $7,500 for his confession by Hearst Newspapers, as you can imagine. It was just bullshit. It just complete, complete mess. I mean, he lied so much about everything. He, he claimed he was innocent at one point, and then he fessed up to twenty-seven murders, and then he said this, he said that. But he, but I just find that amazing that even up to his final day, he was still trying to con money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and uh, at the time, Hearst uh, organization was the biggest media organization, at least in America, if not in the world, mm. uh, because. Um, the movie Citizen Kane is actually uh, based on Randolph Hearst, who owned a Hearst organisation. Yeah. Yeah. But the other thing he said, I don't know if you read this, he said that the devil spoke to him and told him to kill people as well. So he was trying to say he was insane, that he was he didn't know what he was doing, really. But that didn't work because of all the different things he was saying. Uh, uh, like you just said, he was... People don't know if he was trying to fraud newspapers or fraud people by saying he's murdered 27, 30 people, five people. Mm. So it became a uh, mess on his side as well. He eventually was hung. That's how they got rid of him in the end. And he was he was hung yeah. for the murder of Peitzel. That's right, yeah. Apparently until the moment of his death, he was very calm and amiable, showing very few signs of fear, anxiety or depression. I guess he just kind of accepted that, you know, this is it, I'm done. And it wasn't a quick death either. His neck didn't break. So he was hanging on the end of that rope for like 15 minutes, apparently, twitching and whatnot. Yes, this is where um, his great-great-grandson, Jeff Mudgett, basically claims that when he did, uh, they took him off, uh, there's two conspiracies. One that someone swapped places with him. And another one is uh, basically when they took him off, the doctor declared him dead. Apparently, they'd given him some sort of a tablet that would do that to him, where his actual heart would slow down to a point where the equipment they had at the time, medical equipment, um, they couldn't feel his pulse or anything. I don't know how much of that is true, yeah. but it sounds like a Bond movie to me or some yeah, you know, yeah. ridiculous yeah. movie that uh, that's going to happen. I mean, when, um, you, when you were saying that, I was smiling and you started to smile as well. It just sounds bollocks, doesn't it? I mean, perhaps this guy's got gift of the gab from his great 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 grandfather whatever it is you never know don't forget he was a lawyer basically uh, yeah. <laughs> that does yeah. say something um <laughs> yeah and that's a funny thing he goes he goes since he was a young child he's got uh this jeff mudget said he felt that he needed to be on the right side of law and do things right and he didn't realize why until he realized that he was actually uh Related to probably one of the greatest, in his this is his words, one of the most infamous and greatest uh, murders, uh, serial murderers or killers in American history, H. H. Holmes. Amazing. Yeah, it is amazing. Yeah, amazing. Maybe it's gonna, it might come out with a book later on saying that he's actually reincarnated, that he is... Maybe. It's like you and I, you know, we, we could be related to uh, the Queen and we really think that we should be on, should be the next king of the country, yeah. but... Anyway, it, is... Anyone that believes in um, reincarnation, they always come back as a famous person. You know, oh, I, I, I yeah. used to be, yeah, Queen Elizabeth. Oh, I used to be Genghis Khan. I used to be Napoleon. I was Mussolini. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> They're never just some <laughs> random fucker off the street, are they? No, they can't say I'm Joe Bloggs down down the lane uh, down the road who basically used to uh, fix cars. Yeah, because no. we're like everyone will go who? No, yeah. no one cares. Yeah, no, no. no. 
Oh. Well, he's Murder Castle in Chicago. Wrapping this one up. It was torn yes. down in 1938. Yes. Uh, it's the time to leave it up there, isn't it? Yes. I think um, there was a reason why. I think there was disputes with bills still in 1938. <laughs> and they didn't know who to talk to. And unfortunately, they couldn't find any of the family. So they said, OK, let's get rid of it. We're not going to get any money back. And on that site or near that site, they've got the Eagle Wood post office which is the largest post office in uh, chicago or the main post office in chicago so yeah, if you Eng go there yeah yeah englewood yeah you can look englewood. it up on um apple maps and google maps and stuff and you yeah. actually see it. it's just a, a pretty nondescript post office building now yes so you can go there if you ever go to chicago guys and really have a look at this post office and say oh that was so-called the first alleged uh, american serial killer used to live then where his House of Torture, whatever Castle of Tortures was, whatever, House of Horrors, as we call it in Madame Two Sands. And yeah, so that's what, that's him. Yeah, it was H.H. H. Holmes. You mentioned couldn't find any of his family, which is interesting, really, because he had three siblings, apparently. Something that gets glossed over. So, Christ knows what they thought about him when they found out what he was up to. Okay, now. Let's wrap it up there then, mate. Now, it's a very hot evening here in the UK, and we're both kind of struggling with the heat and whatnot. Let's leave it there. Thanks for joining us, everyone. If you've managed to last it this, this long to the end of the podcast without, without almost falling asleep at the desk, our <laughs> lethargic, <laughs> lethargic effort tonight. But thanks for listening. Um, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. 